0: Please take your Bibles and turn in them to Colossians chapter 3, the epistle to the Colossians in chapter 3. I'd like to ask that we read this morning verses 10 through 15, Colossians 3, verses 10 through 15. If you are visiting with us for the first time, we are in the midst of a consecutive series of sermons through the book of Colossians. It's our our effort in our church to... Expound various books of the Bible and to work through them systematically, verse by verse. Uh, by doing that, we hope that the Lord Himself is setting for us the agenda in many ways for what we ought to consider. And so we come in our regular exposition of Colossians to chapter 3. This morning, I hope to expound verses 12 through 15, but I want us to begin reading in verse 10. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Please follow along as I read. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray that You would glorify the triune name now through the preaching of Your Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you were with us last week, I asked you to imagine a Roman spy, an informant for the government. Uh, participating in a church service in Colossae. He's been sent there by uh, his supervisors to investigate this new sect they call Christianity. And we considered last time what that spy would have seen visibly as he observed the congregation. It's possible he would have seen representatives from the various groups that are identified in verse 11. He would have seen a diverse band of people coming together to worship this man Jesus Christ. He would have perhaps seen Greeks and Jews together in one church, circumcised and uncircumcised. There would have been among them perhaps some barbarians and some from the Scythian hordes. There would have been slaves. There would have been free people. And perhaps he might have recognized that something far bigger was bringing all of these people together. He would be able to observe that externally. Now I want you to imagine something a little bit different. I want you to imagine a Roman who is like an investigative journalist. Uh, He's preparing a long-form piece upon the new sect called Christianity. So I want you to imagine this time he enters the community of these Christians not for just one service, but actually enters in kind of among their life together for a six-month period of time. And during these months, He's not just attending their gatherings, He's also visiting some of them in their homes and interviewing them. Perhaps some are coming together organically to share fellowship with one another, and He's able to sit in on those times and observe and ask questions afterwards. He observes their community for six months or a year. What would He have seen then in the Colossian church? What would He have learned about this community of Christians and how they interact and how they live? with one another. The passage before us in Colossians 3 verses 12 through 15 is one of the richest passages in the Bible when it comes to describing what life among the community of faith looks like. I didn't think this out exhaustively, comprehensively, but it may be the very best description in all the Bible in terms of a concise and clear description of what life in the house of the Lord's people is to look like and what virtues and principles and graces are to regulate and condition the community of the Lord's people. This is a description of what life among the Christian community, the life among the church that is Christ-centered ought to look like. What is the aim and object of the gospel and of the new birth with respect to the community of the Lord's people? In other words, we might understand individually what the effect of the gospel is meant to have on our own lives as individual sinners, right? It's to call us to repentance, it's to call us to faith in Jesus Christ, it's to call us to trust in this great thing that God has done in sending His Son into the world and to the cross to die for our sins and to rise again for our justification has massive implications individually for each one of us. That's not exactly what Paul is concerned now at this point in the narrative of Colossians chapter 3. No, now he's asking, he's presenting virtues and graces that are to regulate and condition the family of God in their corporate life together. What is the effect of union with Christ, salvation in Him, dying to sin, living to righteousness now for how we live together? And that is the issue we will consider this morning. I have four main headings that I'd like to provide to shape our exposition of Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Consider with me, number one, the position of of God's people in the church, number two, the priorities of forbearance and forgiveness in the church, number three, the primacy, or you could say the preeminence, the primacy, the preeminence of love in the church, and fourthly, the prevalence of peace in the church. Consider with me, firstly, the position of God's people in the church. There's one main verb in verse 12 that regulates everything through verse 14, and then there's two more imperatives given in verse 14. But I want us to first observe before we consider those imperatives what we're to do. I want to consider how we're described as the people of God. What descriptor Paul gives to these Colossian Christians, the position of God's people in the church. He says, put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He calls them God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Three designations there, let's consider each one, God's chosen ones. In Paul's many writings we have in the New Testament, he will often seek to encourage Christians with the reality that they have been chosen by God. And this reality that God in love before the world was ever made predestined them to adoption as sons and daughters in Christ, never failed to provoke within Paul wonder and praise and thankfulness. This doctrine, we sometimes refer to it as sovereign election or divine predestination. It was meant to pervade the Christian self-awareness. At many points, Paul raises this issue, this recognition that we who are the Lord's people, those who have been chosen by Him, have been elected by Him in love. It is to pervade the Christian self-awareness that I as a Christian have been chosen by God. Brothers and sisters, according to the Bible, we ought to think of ourselves in this way as God's chosen ones. The biblical writers are not terribly concerned with our controversies surrounding the doctrine of election. They're not concerned with the debates among theologians today. They assume and clearly articulate the doctrine of election and predestination at numerous points as a settled fact of salvation. They don't waste ink trying to argue and debate about the doctrine. Rather, in Scripture, they deploy the doctrine usually, almost always, as a means of impressing upon Christians a sense of awesome privilege and of heartfelt devotion to Christ, to know that I, I, a sinner, have been chosen by God This fundamentally shapes how I see God and how I see myself and how I see the church community. Paul wants that sense of being God's chosen ones to pervade their thinking. He wants it to pervade our thinking for those of us who are in Christ. So I ask, brother, sister, have you allowed this reality, this identity, being chosen by the sovereign God, the father of his children, have you allowed this to have its effect on you, a sense of being precious to God? the sense of being the peculiar object of His love, of being chosen by Him, of being His treasured possession. This is how He sees those who are His people, and this is how He wants us to see ourselves, as those chosen of God. The second description in terms of our position as the people of God, He says, they're chosen, also they're holy. God's chosen ones are called to be holy. He chooses them He unites them to His Son, He justifies them and sanctifies them that they would be a holy people. We see this in other letters of the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Why did He choose us? Well, that we might be conformed to the image of His Son in all true holiness and righteousness. Ephesians 1, verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Christian, this is who you are and who you are meant to be as a matter of the new humanity in Christ. As Christians, yes, we are sinners and we will continue to fight sin as long as we live in this fallen world, but we as Christians are to be a holy people also. And we should be known in this world as a holy people. This is how Paul identifies them. Chosen, holy, and then thirdly, beloved. Beloved. They are beloved by whom? I think plainly, Paul could mean beloved by himself. He surely means they are beloved by God Himself. Christians, we as the people of God, as God's chosen ones, we are said to be beloved by Him. We are precious in the sight of God. He cares for us as a shepherd cares for his sheep, like a father's affections are set on his children, his affections are are set on us. We are given this designation, this position as the people of God. We are those who are beloved to God. And sadly, there are some Christians who act as though it's not exactly safe or biblical to imagine that God loves us so. That we should never get too comfortable with the idea lest we become lax in our Christian lives or even misled in our thinking about who God is. Or some actually believe. Now, behind all the assurances of God's love, God hides a kind of tenuous disposition toward us. Almost like he has his fingers crossed behind his back, always waiting to see how we're going to perform before he'll really allow us to experience his love. You might think of that lover's game. Sometimes children will play when they have the flower, he loves me, he loves me not. That could be our experience with God. As though God's love is fickle. And when I have a good day, well, he loves me. When I have a bad day, he loves me not. We can so often view the love of God in this way, but my friend, you need to know this. If you carefully study the Bible on this issue, if you study every reference in the Bible with respect to God's love, his love toward his people, if we truly are to have our minds regulated by the Bible, we can only reach one conclusion, and that is that he really does love us. For those who are his people, we really are beloved to him. There's no gimmick or trick. He doesn't have his fingers crossed behind his back. He really does love us. And his love toward us is steadfast and abundant. It is immutable and immovable and it is unconditional. And the biblical writers, they give us these wonderful descriptions of God's love so that they would control and regulate the way we think about God. The way we think about our standing with him and our relationship to him. Paul says, we're beloved by God. I want you to think of yourselves in this way. You've been chosen by him you're holy and you are beloved and when we read brothers and sisters that we are beloved by God we should allow this description to enter in and shape and influence our whole inner world we should learn to let this reality generate within us all the emotional security all the psychological stability and all the spiritual comfort it is meant to create the truth of this designation that we are beloved by God should flood our souls and come to define and condition our entire relationship with the Lord. We spoke last week about the Scythians who sat among the Colossian church. They were also slave men and women. And they sat they were Jews and Greeks and were circumcised and uncircumcised. Here they all are, so many of them despised in the world, belittled, ostracized, marginalized, oppressed, Paul nonetheless says, here's how I want you to see yourself in the new humanity, in the family of God. You are God's chosen ones, and you are a holy people, and you are by him dearly beloved. To the genuine Christian here this morning who feels so small, so insignificant, so sinful, so vile, how could God even look in my direction except to chastise me? This is his word. This is the position of all those who are His people. We are chosen of God, we are holy, we are beloved. Consider with me secondly now, that's the position of God's people in the church. Consider with me secondly, the priorities of forbearance and forgiveness in the church. Look with me again at verse 12, put on then, it's the main verb, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The imperative is put on. At least that's what it reads in the ESV. Some translations have it clothe yourselves, which is actually a very good translation. The idea is what we saw actually up in verse 5, where we're told to put off or put to death earthly things The language there is is, is the idea of taking off like a robe, taking off a dirty garment and flinging it away. These earthly wicked things that might have marked our former manner of life, these sins that we walked in, we're to take it off and to cast it away and we're to put on like a new robe. We're to put on a new piece of clothing. We're to put on these Christian virtues that are to mark the people of God. And then Paul lists the type of virtues that are to mark the people of God. The kinds of virtues we are to put on as those who are new in Christ. First, he lists compassionate hearts. We who are Christians, we should put on compassionate hearts. A healthy Christian is one inclined toward mercy, toward compassion, and toward pity. Someone who has a compassionate heart is generous, forgiving, and eager to serve others. Paul wants the people of God to have compassionate hearts, compassion toward one another, compassion toward the world. Then he says they're to put on kindness. They're to put on kindness. Uh, It could be translated goodness goodness of heart. could be used to speak also of Christian benevolence, a disposition of benevolence and kindness and goodness toward others. Christians are to be known as those who are universally kind and good and benevolent in their disposition and conduct toward others. Put on then, thirdly, Paul says, humility. Humility. A humility in contrast to pride or arrogance. Paul knows he's spoken already of the gospel of having our sins forgiven, having a record of debt nailed to the cross, he knows everything about the gospel, everything about the forgiveness of sins, everything about grace should conspire to make Christians a humble people. If they truly understand the grace that God has shown them in Jesus Christ, they can never be proud or arrogant. And so in their dealings with one another, they're eager to take to themselves the mind of Christ who humbled Himself as a servant even to the point of death. This is to be the kind of attitude we have toward one another in the family of God, an attitude, a disposition of humility, wherein I see myself as your servant. I see your interests as being of greater significance than my own. Number four, he lists meekness. Meekness should mark the people of God. That's part of the clothing were to put on. The word could be translated gentleness. The people of God are to be gentle in their disposition toward one another and toward outsiders. You know, there are some today who seem to glory in being abrasive as Christian people. They seem to think that somehow a holy calling to be, to be aggressive and forward, and if I offend, well, so be it. That's not an attitude commendable by the Bible. We're to let our reasonableness be evident to all. We're to put on meekness and gentleness in our relationship with one another such that if an investigative journalist came into our midst, they would see these people are gentle and meek in their speech and in their conduct and their relationships with one another. Number five is patience. How we need patience in the family of God. and I think it's patience that then leads directly in to these two participles that Paul uses that I think are both regulating the putting on of these virtues and are putting these virtues to use, two kinds of behaviors now that we're to engage in. They are forbearance and they are forgiveness. Paul calls these Christians these five character traits, but then he deploys them in the exercise of forbearance and forgiveness among the people of God. If we together make up a group of disparate people like Paul described in verse 11, you have Greeks and Jews, circumcised, and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythians, slave and free, with different backgrounds, different expectations, different preferences, different customs. And if we're all sinners in the family of God, in the new humanity, with various besetting sins and sin patterns and sin struggles, all of us with our peculiar weaknesses and failings, if we're all a highly diverse and different people, if we're all sinners saved by the grace of God and we're all called to live in fellowship together, and we're called to bear one another's burdens, and we're called to exhort and at times admonish one another, and if we're called to serve one another and love one another, how important will it be that these virtues control our communal life together, forbearance and forgiveness? Anyone here who has been married, especially if you've been married for over 10 years or so, let's say, you can testify to how vital these virtues are in the maintenance of a successful and godly marriage, how you need in your marriage to have compassion for your spouse, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience if you're going to have a healthy marriage. Similarly, in the household of God, in the life of the community of God's people, we will be successful in sustaining love toward one another and living faithfully as the body of God's people if our life together is marked by these things by compassion in our dealings with each other, compassion toward one another's sins and weaknesses and failings, if we're marked by kindness in our dealings with one another, how we need kindness from one another, if we're marked by humility, that we are a people committed to outdoing one another in showing honor, humbling ourselves before one another, esteeming other people's needs and preferences and interests higher than our own, how we will need meekness and gentleness and how we will need patience. There will be no long-term successful fruitful Christian relationships where there is not patience. But Paul then puts these virtues to use through his use of these two participles speaking of bearing with one another and forgiving one another. I'm calling these the two behaviors under the second point, the priorities of forbearance and forgiveness. We will not make it far in the life of the church together, If these two dynamics do not pervade our corporate life, first of all, forbearance. Verse 13, bearing with one another. Put on these virtues, bearing with one another. It could literally be translated to endure one another, to put up with one another, to tolerate one another. Forbearance might be softening it a little bit. It literally means, I tolerate you. I put up with you, I ask you, brother or sister, did you expect in joining this church that you were going to have to endure things from your brothers and sisters, that you were going to have to labor to tolerate and put up with certain things, that you were going to have to persevere through hardships imposed upon you by the people around you, that their failings and weaknesses and sins and preferences were going to create actual liabilities for you and require that you grow in sanctification. Or did you think, well, this will just be at all times delightful because all these people are just like me. They will never offend me. They will never disappoint me. They will never disagree with me. They will never have preferences contrary to my own. They will perpetually satisfy me and meet my every need. Sadly, that's often the disposition a young man or a young woman drunk on love will take going into a marriage. How could I ever have to tolerate her Uh, I'm not going to have to put up with Him, we're in love, right? And everything's just sweet music and the birds are chirping and all that. Sadly, sometimes people actually enter the church that way. They think, I will never be called upon in this church to actually sacrifice my own preferences. I doubt these people will offend me, I won't have to tolerate anything or endure anything. Paul is saying that one of the chief virtues required to sustain the corporate life of the people of God is that we bear with one another. That we put up with one another's failings, that we tolerate differences that might otherwise be onerous, might otherwise bother us, or normally would set us off. There really is a need in the church to bear with and endure one another. There really is no need to bear with and endure and tolerate people's strengths and virtues. That's not a virtue required. If, if people are just at all times delightful and pleasant and they're totally aligned with us, there's no need to call someone to forbear. You only need forbearance when there's a burden to be borne that's imposed upon you by another person. No, you bear with people's weaknesses and failings. That is when forbearance comes into play. It's the idea of you being laden with a burden that is actually imposed on you by the other person, and you're holding up that burden, and you forbear, in patience, you tolerate them. You carry that load that they put on you that is what Paul is calling us to here again marriage is a fitting analogy husbands and wives you know this whatever your partner's weaknesses or shortcomings or baggage when you marry him or her you now bear them you must forbear with him you must forbear with her there is no successful long-term marriage without a steadfast commitment to forbearance and any successful couple here will tell you they didn't make it as a couple because they successfully managed to change everything about their spouse to suit all of their preferences. People do enter marriage with that kind of optimism that, well, if I encounter something that I don't like, well, I'll I'll persuade her to change. I'll persuade him to change. I'll overwhelm uh, uh, my spouse with my charisma and my charm, and they'll come to see my side of things. You ask the couples here married 25 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, they'll tell you, we didn't make it by successfully changing everything about our spouse we didn't like. We made it by accepting each other, by forbearing with one another's weaknesses, with tolerating difference and hardship at different times, by persevering and enduring when we were misaligned and when her preferences violated mine and my preferences violated hers. So it is in the church, we must bear with one another. Forbearance is only called for in the midst of challenges and shortcomings. It's always been striking to me to appreciate the flow of the book of Ephesians. Uh, in In chapters one through three of the book of Ephesians, you don't have a single imperative verb. All the verbs are in the mood of what's called the indicative, telling us just what's true. All these glorious statements about Christ and His grace and the forgiveness of sins and us being raised with Him and All these wonderful things God has accomplished for us. And then in chapter four, it all changes. All the verbs turn to imperatives. Okay, in light of these things, how are you supposed to live? And where does Paul go first in chapter 4? I wonder if you know. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, after all these wonderful gospel truths about the grace of God in Christ. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul knows one of the chief virtues needed for the maintenance of unity and love and commitment in relationships among the people of God is forbearance. And of course, friends, don't you know, brothers and sisters, if you've really grasped the gospel, you know that part of the motivation in your forbearing with others is because you know You will need them to forbear with you. I forbear because I so badly need others to forbear with me. And you know also, where would I be without the forbearance of Christ? How I need Christ to forbear with my weaknesses and my failings and my sins. Thus, we must forbear with one another. The second uh, behavior that is called forth, the second priority listed is forgiveness. Verse 13, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Put on these virtues, forbearing and forgiving. According to this verse, verse 13, our attitude toward the sins and offenses of others committed against us is to be shaped by two main factors. Number one, our knowledge of our own sinfulness our knowledge of our own sinfulness, my interactions with the sins of others committed against me is to be regulated by the fact that I know myself to be a sinner who has been forgiven. If you understand yourself to be a sinner deep down at the heart level, and if you are familiar with 10,000 betrayals of your Lord, the perversity and duplicity of your own heart, and the temptations and sins that still ensnare you, it will really affect the way you see others. If you see yourself as a sinner, one who can be enticed by sin, and one who so desperately needs forgiveness, you will become yourself a purveyor of forgiveness. If you see yourself as one in need of grace, it will regulate how you behave toward others. You will become a dispenser of grace, a dispenser of mercy and forgiveness. But there's a second controlling thought, a second motivation that is to motivate our forgiveness, and that is the abundance of the Lord's mercy and forgiveness toward ourselves. His mercy and grace and forgiveness becomes a pattern for us and our forgiveness of others. The way He dealt with our offenses against Him is to shape the way I deal with the offenses committed against me. But the sister grace will pour forth from you out of the overflow of your own experience from grace at the Lord's hands. And the New Testament is clear. It is stated in so many places, the Lord's forgiveness, the way He's been abundant in forgiving us and overlooking our offenses and dealing with them graciously and in mercy, that is to be the paradigm for our forgiveness of others. So in the Lord's Prayer, what do we ask the Lord? We ask Him to forgive us as we have forgiven our debtors. In other words, there is a symmetry between the way He has forgiven me and the way I'm to forgive others. Ephesians 4.32 says this, be kind to one another Tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Bible teaches as clearly as it can that a person's attitude toward the sins of others is directly shaped by their comprehension of the grace of God and the forgiveness offered in the gospel. This is a major issue to the New Testament writers and to the Lord Jesus in particular. You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18? I believe our brother Rex Blackburn preached on this a couple years ago. Remember how that parable goes? First it's prompted by Peter asking the Lord, he says, um, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? No, like, like he's, he's really being gracious. I, I'm willing to go up to seven times, Lord. And what does the Lord say to him? No, 70 times seven. And then he tells this parable. He says that there was this servant who owed a great debt to his master. He couldn't pay the debt and he falls before the master and he pleads for forgiveness and the master and all grace and mercy uh, actually pays the debt for him and sends him on his way. And what does that servant do? He goes out and he finds one of his servants who owes him money. It says he actually chokes the guy. He chokes him. and says, you pay me what you owe me. How does the Lord deal with that servant then? He actually flings him into outer darkness those who are into prison. He says, I forgave your debt. Should you not also forgive those who are indebted to you? What's the point? My grace and forgiveness was meant to shape your grace and forgiveness toward others. You have not comprehended the grace of God. You have not experienced His forgiveness if you are unforgiving in your heart toward your brother and your sister. The simple point is that the Lord's forgiveness of us is the pattern for our forgiveness of others. And the kind of forgiveness Paul is calling for in our passage in Colossians 3 is Christ-like forgiveness, a forgiveness that wipes the slate clean, that does not hold the record of wrongs against someone. It is an eagerness to show mercy, an eagerness to freely forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Friends, a good rule of thumb when it comes to the issue of forgiveness, treat others with respect to their sins and failings as you hope Christ will treat you with respect to your sins and failings. The sins of your spouse, sins of your children, sins of your brothers and sisters, sins of your coworkers, treat the sins of others as you hope Christ will treat your sins against him. Now, there's a qualification I should give. Biblical forgiveness does not always require that the offended party is always immediately Responsible to extend a full restoration of trust to the offender. Okay, so there are situations in which the sin of another against us has long-term consequences in this life. There may be certain offenses that we commit against others or that others commit against us that will require a more long-term fracture to a relationship. But that is not the kind of thing Paul is envisioning here. He's talking about life among the people of God and the 10,000 sort of garden variety sins that populate our lives. The 10,000 kinds of offenses that we must bear at one another's hands and his attitude toward these sins is that we should have the same attitude that Christ had toward us in forgiving our sins. We are to forgive freely and abundantly. All right, now more briefly, these final two points. We've considered the position of God's people in the church. Secondly, the priorities of forbearance and forgiveness in the church. Now, thirdly, I'm calling this the primacy of love in the church. The primacy, or if this word works better for you, the preeminence of love in the church. Look at the language Paul uses in verse 14. And above all these. I think that means compassion, meekness, patience, etc., forbearance, forgiveness, above all these. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul says above all these, above all these. I think what he means by above all is that love has the place of primacy. It is the most important thing. These things I've said are important, but this that I am saying now is most important. Above all these other virtues, put on love. Love is the greatest of all. Nothing rises to this level of importance. It is preeminent among the virtues. It occupies the highest seat. But also notice what is said about love. Verse 14, the ESV renders it, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony." Binds everything together in perfect harmony. A more literal translation would read something like, above all these put on love, which is the bond of perfection, or or which is the perfect bond. The idea is that love is like a bond. It's like a fetter. It's like a rope or some kind of thing to affix something to something else. Love is like a cord that wraps us together in the family of God. And this bond is said to be perfect. It doesn't break. It doesn't wear out. It is the thing that can truly keep us together. It is the perfect bond that will not be broken. Now, some may feel in reading this verse, verse 14, above all these put on love, which is the perfect bond. You may feel instinctively that Paul is overstating the case here. That he's giving love so high a seat among the virtues. But he's not overstating the case. This verse is not at all exceptional in the Bible. A multitude of passages can be adduced to prove the primacy of love. In fact, almost every New Testament book makes some contribution to this subject or love. Some kind of statement about the importance of love among the people of God. I'd like to remind you of just one. You don't need to turn there. It's a very familiar passage. 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is often read out at weddings, and that's fine. It's in every way appropriate. Husbands and wives should think toward their spouses along the lines of 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is that passage where Paul says that, although I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a sounding brass, I'm like a noisy gong. He says, if I have love, I'm nothing. I could give my body to be burned. I could be a martyr. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing, I'm just like white noise. And he says in that passage, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Well, you can see, can't you, why that's a valuable text to read out at a wedding. If you're going to persevere in a marriage, you're going to need love. But that's not the reason Paul supplied this passage. Do you know what the immediate context is? In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul has just concluded talking about life as the body of Christ. Some are hands and feet and ears and eyes and mouths and all that kind of stuff. And we're to have care for one another we're to be as one body together, and we're going to have differing gifts, and we're going to have to employ them in service to one another. He calls upon 1 Corinthians 13 now as the thing most needed in the church. It is love. So so actually, to think most accurately to the original audience to which 1 Corinthians 13 was given is not to think about your spouse, but rather to think about the person in the church that you instinctively find most unlovely. That's why Paul supplies this passage. Think about the person in the church who grates on you. This person requires your forbearance more than anyone else. You exercise patience with everybody, but for her, for him, I mean, you just have to put in overtime in terms of compassion, kindness, patience, and forbearing. Forgiveness, oh, I've had to forgive a lot, I can tell you. You should have heard what she said to me. Oh, I heard what he had said behind my back. You know, he never really greets me in the hallway. Or Think of that person in the church who is hardest for you to love. Paul says that in the church community, in the new humanity, above all these things, we're to put on love, which is the perfect bond. In First Corinthians 13, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things love never ends. Can you see why it's called the bond of perfection? It is the bond that will keep people together. Brothers and sisters, this is true of of any true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are to persevere as the people of God, united and faithful to the mission that Christ has called us to, we're going to need a bond. We're going to need something to keep us together. And you may think the perfect bond, the most important bond is doctrine. If you think that, you're wrong. We need doctrine. But that's not said to be the bond of perfection that will keep sinful people together for generations. No, what keeps people together, forbearing with one another year after year, forgiving one another decade after decade, is this perfect bond that is said to be love. Love that covers a multitude of sins. Love that bears and endures all things. Love that believes all things and hopes all things and perseveres in the midst of the many challenges that face us in the church community. Love is the highest priority, it has the place of primacy. Okay, fourthly and finally, hopefully you've stayed with me here. We've considered the position of God's people in the church. Secondly, the priorities of forbearance and forgiveness in the church. Thirdly, the primacy of love in the church. And finally, the prevalence of peace in the church, the prevalence of peace. Here's Paul's aspiration for the Colossian Christians, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, that is, to peace, you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. I want to remind you of some of the things the Scriptures say about the person of Christ in relation to peace. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 9, verse 6, said that there would come this child that would be born and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Zechariah said of the Christ in Luke 1, 79, He will guide our feet into the way of peace. The angels announced the birth of Christ with a song singing, Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus himself said to his disciples in the upper room, John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. When Jesus first appears to his disciples after his resurrection, we read in John 20, verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace, peace be with you. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 17, And He came and preached peace to you who were far off. And He preached peace to those who were nearer. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jesus' ministry among his people has always been a ministry of peace. He himself is our peace. He brings peace and he creates peace. And Paul's exhortation in our text is that we're to let his peace, the peace of Christ, rule in our hearts. He says that it's this peace to which we have been called in one body. In other words, this is the vision. This is the aim. Peace is to reign in the church. Peace is to prevail. Division is to be seen as an aberration. Our orientation is to be always toward peace in the church. Discord is to be seen as an intruder in our corporate life together in the body, but peace is to prevail and reign and rule in the church. There are some people, sadly, who will take within the church a sort of antagonistic posture uh, in the context of relationships, in the context of church meetings. Maybe you've been in business meetings that get kind of out of control and people come kind of loaded and they're ready to have a brawl or something like that. Maybe you've been in church settings that were marked so often by division and discord and rivalry. Paul's saying it's not to be that way. That's not the vision. That's not to prevail in the household of God? Are The peace is to prevail in the midst of real differences, in the midst of real family conversations that have to be had, in the midst of difficult things that will come up in the family of God. But our orientation is always to be toward peace. After all, if we are Christ-centered, the one who is said to be the Prince of Peace, if we're to follow our Lord faithfully, shouldn't peace mark our corporate life together? Now, I recognize there are seasons in the life of any church where there will be some measure of division and it will require that that's worked out together and it's, it's addressed together, but that's always to be seen as an intruder into the peace that is to prevail, the peace that is to rule in our hearts, the peace to which Christ has called us in one body. And finally, he says, be thankful, thankful for Christ who has made us new, thankful for His blood that has made us one, thankful for our union with Him through which we die to our sins and live to newness of life, thankful for our belonging in the family of God. Let me conclude by reading the passage again. Put on they as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. To Paul and to the people of God, this is an aspiration. But though it's an aspiration, it's also a reality. This is what life in the Father's house is meant to look like. And I'm happy to say personally, and many of you can say the same thing. I've experienced several communities of faith that are marked by these very virtues. Where we have lived together for years and years and years and we've bared things from one another, we've forgiven one another, we've persevered in relationships together. Some of you come from homes in which discord and chaos prevailed. You didn't see anything like the picture that we see in here. This, this kind of community didn't mark your home life. It hasn't marked your relationships out there in the world. But I want to tell you there are churches. There are churches created by the gospel itself where these things do prevail. These virtues and graces do mark the people of God, but the way they're formed is not by collecting up all the people in the world who are particularly agreeable and amiable and really good at perseverance and really good at forbearance and they're just really patient and somehow they all make it work together. To the degree that these virtues have been achieved in this particular church, it has been brought about by the supernatural power of the Spirit of God. It's been brought about by the Lord himself taking sinners and uniting them to his Son, By them turning from their sins and putting their faith in Jesus Christ and learning these virtues at the feet of a man called Jesus Christ. For the church that walks in Him. How do you learn to be compassionate? Well, you look at Jesus who looked upon the multitudes in Matthew 9 and He had compassion for them. How do you learn to be patient? Well, you look at Jesus in the upper room who having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. How do you learn kindness? Where did we get that idea from? How have we learned it? We've learned it at the feet of Jesus, who was universally kind to needy sinners who came to him to be healed, who came to him to have a word from him, who came to him that they might have everlasting life. Where will we learn forbearance? Where will we learn forgiveness? If not from the Lord, who has put up with thousands upon thousands of sins and betrayals and offenses against his holy word. And yet, in grace and mercy, has borne them all in his body on the cross and has forgiven our sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west. You want to be this kind of person and you want to have access and entrance into this kind of community? It can only happen through following the person of Jesus Christ and learning these things at his feet. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you have furnished us with a beautiful picture of what the new humanity is to be like. The community that your grace and your gospel creates. Lord, we would not know, we would have no knowledge or experience of forbearance and forgiveness with which to give to others if we did not have it at your hands. We pray that we would see in our Savior a most beautiful picture of compassion and mercy of kindness and love, of patience and forbearance, of forgiveness. We pray that you would so work in us and so change us, that these things would come to mark our lives also. We pray that you would so work in this church to wrap around us that perfect bond, that perfect cord of love, that we might live in peace and in unity and in harmony together, that we might forbear with one another and forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us We pray that you would supply everything that is needed to make us faithful in the mission you've called us to, to make us faithful in our life together, to make us faithful in all of our individual relationships, to be new men and women in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.